IEA Current Controversies Number 71 New Vision Liberating the BBC from the Licence Fee by Philip Booth, January 2020 The full version of this paper, including footnotes and a bibliography, can be found on the Research tab of the IEA's website at www.iea.org.uk About the author Philip Booth is Senior Academic Fellow at the Institute of Economic Affairs and Professor of Finance, Public Policy and Ethics at St Mary's University, Twickenham. He also holds the position of Dean of Education, Humanities and Social Sciences at St Mary's, having previously been Director of Research and Public Engagement. From 2002 to 2016, Philip was Academic and Research Director, previously Editorial and Programme Director, at the IEA. From 2002 to 2015, he was Professor of Insurance and Risk Management at Cass Business School. Previously, Philip Booth worked for the Bank of England as an advisor on financial stability issues, and he was also Associate Dean of Cass Business School and held various other academic positions at City University. He has written widely, including a number of books on investment, finance, social insurance and pensions, as well as on the relationship between Catholic social teaching and economics. He is Deputy Editor of Economic Affairs. Philip is a Fellow of the Royal Statistical Society, a Fellow of the Institute of Actuaries and an Honorary Member of the Society of Actuaries of Poland. He has previously worked in the Investment Department of AXA Equity and Law and was involved in a number of projects to help develop actuarial professions and actuarial finance and investment professional teaching programmes in Central and Eastern Europe. Philip has a BA in Economics from the University of Durham and a PhD from City University. Introduction Broadcasting policy has been dominated by both government and producer interests almost since the invention of radio. This has been reflected in policy decisions taken by government and by the lack of change in relation to public service broadcasting policy, even as technology has changed radically. A proper understanding of the nature of public service broadcasting is necessary as the starting point for discussion about the appropriate policy framework. Following such an analysis, it is very difficult to make a case for a state-owned broadcaster funded by a tax on television users in general. Four major policy changes are recommended in this paper. The first is that it should not be necessary to pay a BBC subscription to receive television channels that are not financed by the licence fee. Basic concepts of fairness and justice justify this conclusion, quite apart from economic considerations. The second is that the BBC should become a subscriber-owned mutual organisation. Echoing the National Trust, it could be called the, quote, National Broadcasting Trust, close quote, though its formal structure would be more like a mutual building society or insurance company than a charity. Whatever its formal name, it would probably wish to keep the BBC brand for marketing reasons. Thirdly, the BBC should lose its legal privileges. Finally, it is argued that, quote, public service broadcasting, close quote, should no longer be part of the public policy lexicon, though broadcasting might be a means by which other policy objectives are achieved, for example, in the field of education or the arts. The slippery concept of public service broadcasting. 
Those who wish to protect the current funding model for public service broadcasting have subtly changed the meaning of the term as earlier meanings have become irrelevant. It could reasonably be asked whether there is an element of ex-post rationalism designed to protect vested interests. The television licence fee evolved out of a system whereby the post office, working with radio manufacturers, charged owners of radio sets to receive programmes. It was designed to create a hypothecated charge to overcome the quote public good close quote aspects of broadcasting. Public goods are goods which are not excludable, so it is difficult to stop people who do not pay for them benefiting from them, and which are non-rivalrous, that is the marginal cost of serving an additional user is zero. Given the available technology until the 1980s, a plausible case could be made that broadcasting had these qualities. Given that public goods may be underprovided in a market, the solution was to charge a fee to everybody who had a television, regardless of whether they watched the BBC, and use the revenue to fund the BBC. If televisions were owned only for watching pre-recorded videos and no signals were received, the licence fee did not have to be paid. In addition, it was also argued that broadcasting had the attributes of a natural monopoly. This was discussed, for example, even as late as 1999 in Department for Culture, Media and Sport, drawing on other, more academic sources. Monopoly could arise in theory because of economies of scale or spectrum scarcity. However, in practice, it would seem that the monopoly was far from natural. Insofar as there ever was a monopoly in broadcasting, it arose as a result of political decisions that limited spectrum use for broadcasting in both the UK and the US. Additionally, in the UK, an institutional environment existed which led to the creation initially of a single broadcaster with limited state-controlled entry in later decades. A range of academic work, especially pioneered by Course, shows how there could have been a market for spectrum competition and freedom of entry, but that this was stifled by the government with the explicit objective of centralising control of broadcasting. The same vested interests still have a stronghold over policy today. New justifications for public service broadcasting it is clear that the historical justifications for public policy interventions to promote public service broadcasting are no longer relevant, even if they once were. If spectrum scarcity, lack of excludability and so on were ever significant and inherent features of the broadcast market, they are not so today. But the current funding model and the special status of the BBC remains. There has been a change in how policymakers define public service broadcasting, but even if the new definitions are valid, they do not lead us to the conclusion that the current funding model for broadcasting is the correct one. Different definitions of public service broadcasting lead to different conclusions about how to fund public service broadcasting. The current definition of public service broadcasting, PSB, given in Ofcom, paraphrased slightly to ensure grammatical sense in the context in which it is quoted below, is as follows. PSB should inform our understanding of the world through news, information and analysis of current events and ideas. PSB stimulates knowledge and learning to stimulate our interest in and knowledge of arts, science, history and other topics through content that is accessible and can encourage informal learning. PSB reflects UK cultural identity and reflects and strengthens cultural identity through original programming at UK national and regional level, on occasion bringing audiences together for shared experiences. 
PSB should represent diversity and alternative viewpoints to make us aware of different cultures and alternative viewpoints through programmes that reflect the lives of other people and other communities, both within the UK and elsewhere. And the characteristics of public service broadcasting suggested by Ofcom are that it is high quality, well-funded and well-produced, original new UK content rather than repeats or acquisitions, innovative, breaking new ideas or reinventing exciting approaches rather than copying old ones, challenging, thus making viewers think, widely available if content is publicly funded, a large majority of citizens need to be given a chance to watch it, distinctive. These objectives and characteristics are, in fact, already outdated and do not make obvious sense. They appear contrived. For example, public service broadcasting is supposed to inform our understanding of the world and stimulate learning. Why then does it have to be original UK content? Can the objective not be achieved through overseas programmes or repeats? Arguably, Kenneth Clark's Civilization, still available from BBC iPlayer, informs our understanding of the world and fulfills any reasonable definition of public service broadcasting. If there are any legitimate policy objectives in relation to encouraging new UK production, surely these are matters for industrial policy and not broadcasting policy. Indeed, it seems contradictory that public service broadcasting is supposed to open us up to new cultures and yet be delivered in a framework that is explicitly protectionist with some nationalistic overtones. Furthermore, why does public service broadcasting have to be well-funded as well as well-produced? Is it not enough for it to be well-produced? Why should it be available to large majorities of citizens when different groups will have different tastes? Is Welsh language programming, for example, not part of public service broadcasting? Current broadcasting policy is anachronistic. Changes in technology mean that policy in relation to public service broadcasting, as such, is no longer necessary. In public policy terms, there is excessive focus on the means to an end broadcasting policy, and particular institutional approaches, the maintenance of specific television channels in their current form, rather than the ends themselves, the promotion of education, culture, the arts, and so on. Arguably, there should be no distinct legitimate government policy objective labelled, quote, public service broadcasting, close quote, even if broadcast content is an appropriate means of achieving desired ends in areas such as education, arts, culture, community cohesion, etc. There is a separate but linked question of whether public service broadcasting, as currently defined and promoted through the BBC, and to a more limited extent through other broadcasters, is effective in reaching its audience and achieving its objectives. There are no realistic comparators with the service provided by the BBC because other providers of content have to raise funds through advertising, donation or subscription and then compete with free-to-air content that is paid for through the TV licence. However, Veer et al. suggest that the BBC, as the main public service broadcaster, struggles to deliver content which is appreciated by wide groups of the population. They concluded... The BBC was widely considered to have a white middle-class southeast bias. The representation of older women was considered restricted to just a few roles across a limited range of genres. People from lower socio-economic backgrounds felt they are often portrayed in narrow and negative ways. Many minority groups feel misunderstood, stigmatised or simply overlooked by society in general and notice this reflected on TV.
Whilst the proposals in this paper would still lead there to be a BBC with significant size and presence, these issues, which are echoed in a wide range of surveys, raise the question of whether it is possible or appropriate for a single broadcaster to attempt to serve the whole public and be financed by a tax levied on all television sets. It is not only in markets for consumer products where one expects to see a wide variety of institutions operating in a competitive environment, the market for culture, the arts and education is also diverse. Surely broadcasting should be opened up to greater competition and institutional variety too. The model of funding the BBC would appear anachronistic. Developments in technology mean that the television set, on which the current tax is levied to support public service broadcasting, may cease to exist as a distinct kind of device, as it will come to be combined with other kinds of devices and platforms. More people will simply not have a conventional television set and will watch broadcast content on a mobile phone or laptop. There is already an anomaly in that a licence is needed to watch any content on a television but is only needed for a mobile device or computer if live television or BBC content is watched. It is therefore possible to watch other freeview content on a tablet or laptop with a device connected to a television screen as long as the television is not receiving television signals and the content is not live. The behaviour which reveals this anomaly may well become the norm. It was recognised in a House of Lords report, published in 2009, that the context for public service broadcasting policy has changed, and that, implicitly, policy should also move on from a consideration of institutions to a policy focused on broadcast content. The House of Lords Communications Committee report stated, quote, the interpretation of public service broadcasting as content that the market does not sufficiently provide is gaining increasing support. It implies a focus on defining the core elements of public service provision that should, as a matter of public policy, continue to be supported. Such elements might include, for example, national and regional news, current affairs programmes, the arts, children's programming, programmes dealing with religion and other beliefs, and UK content. Close quote. The provision of content that would be underprovided in a market is a legitimate, if contested, aim of government policy. The acceptance of this aim would take us very close to the justification used for intervention in the market for art and culture more generally. As discussed in Frey, intervention in the market for art and culture can be justified from the perspective of the externalities that might arise. Arguably, this is now the main justification, if there is any at all, for the subsidisation of broadcast content. A wide variety of art institutions are able to access public funding on the same basis. The nature of broadcasting and production, limited economies of scale in many areas, low barriers to entry, the importance in many contexts of local knowledge or knowledge of a niche subject area, and high levels of innovation would suggest that the model of focusing funding on a single institution is both an inappropriate and an inefficient way to achieve legitimate policy objectives in broadcasting. In the past, it has been suggested that changing technology should lead broadcasting policy to be seen in the same way as arts policy, with an, quote, arts council for the air, close quote, funding public service broadcasting from a range of providers. This was a key conclusion of Peacock. For example, an independent broadcaster could be subsidised to provide news in Welsh. Classic FM could be subsidised to broadcast concerts featuring young composers with less audience appeal. 
or the BBC could be subsidised to produce programmes on history, whilst the general model for funding the BBC was based on subscriptions of various kinds. There are discussions of this approach in Booth. However, despite its merits as compared with existing models of financing public service broadcasting, this proposed approach has itself now become outmoded. Broadcasting has become too diffuse and diverse as an industry to treat it in this way. Just as we do not have a, quote, national books policy, close quote, or, quote, national intellectual magazines policy, close quote, still less a national, quote, educational websites policy, close quote, we do not need a national broadcasting policy as such. If there are other areas of public policy, such as education, for which broadcast or streamed content are legitimate means of achieving the desired objective, the production of appropriate broadcast or streamed content can be facilitated to meet the desired education policy ends. This approach is already followed, for example, through collaborations between the BBC and the Open University. Just as various organisations sponsor the publication of books, other information sources, exhibitions, the production of videos and so on for educational purposes, they could also sponsor the development of content for broadcasting or streaming. The Arts Council could give grants to producers and broadcasters to promote its objectives. The distinction between a performance in theatre, subsidised by the Arts Council, and a niche television programme, broadcast by the BBC, but designed to achieve the same educational or cultural objectives as a theatre performance, is an artificial one. Support for programming, whether provided to producers or broadcasters, would not have to cover the total cost of production and broadcasting, of course. As with special exhibitions or theatre performances, revenue can be obtained from a number of sources, not least from advertising and subscription income. The likelihood is that, in the modern world, public policy objectives, admittedly themselves contested, in the field of education or the arts, can be served through broadcast and streamed content. If this is the case, those ends would best be achieved in a competitive environment with a wide range of producers and broadcasters, some large, some small, some niche, and some of them broadcasting internationally to groups of people with similar interests in different countries. But this should not be thought of as broadcasting policy as such, but as a means to pursue policy objectives in the areas of the arts and education. The future funding, ownership and structure of the BBC. The BBC is currently privileged, in the proper sense of the word, in that it is exempt from the usual competition laws that apply in the UK and from state aid rules that apply in the EU. It also has a privileged source of funding. The BBC's income stream is not dependent on its ability to satisfy viewers, but on the ability of television services as a whole to satisfy viewers, as anybody who receives television signals has to contribute to the BBC's income stream. Funding the BBC As has been discussed above, although there are some arguments that might favour some subsidisation of broadcast content, it is difficult to think of a coherent argument for requiring those who wish to watch one television channel to pay for content on a different channel. It is highly plausible, given the range of television channels, that somebody might watch a highly educational diet of programming on a range of channels that do not include the BBC and yet have to pay for the BBC. If there ever were a coherent argument, changes in technology have now nullified it. A more appropriate approach to funding broadcasting can be achieved with a relatively straightforward transition. 
as households' television licences expire, they should be allowed to renew their licence to watch any television or digital service for which the BBC continued to require payment. But all other channels and programming, whether subscription or freeview, could be watched without payment to the BBC. The BBC would become a subscription service, though it could seek other forms of income if it wished. It would also be free to charge differential subscriptions to different groups of people, such as those who only watched on mobile devices, those who had multiple devices, those watching from overseas, hotels, care homes and pubs, those over aged 75, those under age 25, and so on. Different packages could be available for different service levels. For example, an arts channel could be introduced with a separate subscription. One-off fees could be paid for temporary or partial access. It could be argued that initially, a regulatory framework would be necessary to limit how the BBC's charging structure evolves, given its near monopoly of certain broadcast services, although its proposed status as a subscriber-owned mutual may make this unnecessary. There may be concern that a monopoly in some service areas could lead to consumers being exploited. One advantage of a subscriber-owned mutual is that it helps resolve conflicts of interest between subscribers and owners, as they are the same group of people. There may be some activities, such as particular radio stations, the Parliament Channel and World Service, that the government wishes to subsidise or fund entirely, regardless of the funding and ownership structure of the BBC, on the grounds that these fulfil particular policy objectives, or because of the difficulty of excludability when it comes to charging. The government could contract with the BBC to provide those services, whilst being free to find alternative platforms if it wished. Ownership of the BBC. Creating a subscriber-owned mutual. Peacock, in Peacock et al., also citing his earlier work, suggests an ownership model for the BBC like the National Trust. Of course, the National Trust has members, but it is a charity with assets that have to be used for stated charitable purposes. What is proposed here is somewhat different. Though there may be a charitable part of the organisation, the BBC would become a subscriber-owned mutual. His prime concern is to ensure that broadcasting reflects consumer sovereignty and preferences. This is almost impossible to achieve in a nationalised ownership model. At the same time, as Peacock notes, there is probably not a consumer desire for the BBC to be transformed into a fully commercialised company. This situation has not changed. In a 2017 opinion poll, only 25% of the population expressed the view that the BBC should be, quote, privatised and run by private companies, close quote. In more recent polls, there has been strong opposition to licence fee funding. For example, in a poll published in December 2019, 75% of people opposed licence fee funding and 56% of people believed that the BBC should secure its own funding. Of course, decisions should not be taken simply by reference to opinion polls and the option of a mutual model proposed here was not suggested as an alternative in either of these polls. However, there does not seem to be strong public support for the status quo or for privatisation along commercial lines. Following the Peacock approach, a feasible model for BBC ownership would involve turning the licence fee into a subscription. Within this model, individual and commercial subscribers to the BBC could become equal owners in a mutual structure, instead of the representatives of the licence fee payer, nominally the government, appointing the trustees of the BBC, they would be elected by the subscribers in the same way as the trustees of a charity such as the National Trust or the board of a mutual building society are elected. 
The National Trust has 5 million members, and so the scale of the organisation would be similar to that of the BBC under a mutual model. The BBC would be larger, with 25 million subscribers, if all existing licence holders subscribed. Even if 80% subscribed, it would, of course, be many times the size of the National Trust, but it would be the same order of magnitude. As a proportion of the country's population, the number of BBC members would not be very different from the number of TUC members at its peak. The co-op also has about 4 million members. The board would determine policy in relation to issues such as advertising and all aspects of strategy. The BBC Mutual could have a charitable arm and also commercial arms, the income from which would be used to reduce member subscriptions. At any time, members and or their trustee representatives could choose to float off commercial arms or indeed purchase new commercial entities or engage in joint ventures. A number of mutual insurance companies used to operate in this way. For example, the Mutual Life Assurer Norwich Union used to wholly own all the shares in the shareholder-owned general insurance arm. Indeed, the cooperative still does, as does the National Trust to a smaller extent. There should be some measures taken to prevent the subscriber owners selling off the assets of the organisation and profiting, given that they have not paid for the assets. The subscription would be a charge for services and not a charge for the transfer of assets. One approach would be to require that, if the BBC changed its ownership structure by selling shares or selling off sections, an amount of money equal to the value of the assets at the time of mutualisation, accumulated at a reasonable risk-adjusted return, should be transferred to the Exchequer. This approach is perfectly compatible with the structures of a free economy. There is a rich history of mutual organisations and cooperatives developing from the 19th century to meet different kinds of needs and preferences. Despite increases in regulatory oversight in the financial sector, undermining the comparative advantage of mutuals, there are still more than 100 mutual insurers with 30 million members. It may well be a model that is preferred by potential BBC subscribers, rather than a fully commercial and shareholder-owned structure, in order to, for example, maintain the character of the BBC, or to ensure that ownership is widely dispersed. There are disadvantages of a mutual structure, The first is that the costs of corporate governance are often higher because of the divergent aims of different owners and the widely dispersed nature of ownership. Secondly, raising capital is more difficult for a mutual because control cannot be offered to those who are subscribing capital. The BBC will be limited in its ability to expand if it has a mutual structure. However, BBC subscribers may perceive value from being member owners of such an organisation in and of itself. This may compensate for the reduced technical efficiency of such a model. Secondly, if a degree of conservatism is actually regarded as intrinsic to the success of the BBC, for example, perhaps paradoxically, for encouraging different forms of artistic innovation from those that would be encouraged in a shareholder-owned firm, ownership models other than a fully commercial shareholder-owned model might well be most appropriate. According to Ricketts, this is one of the reasons why most universities are not profit-making entities, despite being private institutions, at least in the UK. The BBC would begin with considerable monopoly power. Mutual structures can help align the interests of owners and consumers in such circumstances. Problems that might arise from the mutual model can be mitigated by the BBC establishing commercial operations, which would be managed by a board accountable to the BBC trustees, but would have largely profit-making objectives. 
Joint ventures with commercial organisations would also be a way of ensuring that entrepreneurialism, commercial innovation and efficient delivery are key features of those parts of the BBC's operations for which such approaches are thought best. Legal privileges Currently, the BBC comes under very little scrutiny in relation to competition issues. It is able to provide services for free, financed by the licence fee, which may undermine the business models for similar content provided by other organisations, though Ofcom can investigate such behaviour. For example, BBC Bite Size, a free service which provides education materials, competes directly with textbooks that cannot, of course, be provided for free. In addition, the media plurality rules hardly affect the BBC at all. It is not possible for large newspaper groups to own more than 20% of third-channel providers, or vice versa. But the BBC is able to host a news website, which is used by more people than any newspaper group website, in addition to its television and radio channels, which are used as a news source by more people than all newspaper sources put together. Furthermore, EU state aid rules do not apply to public service broadcasting. The media regulator Ofcom has introduced rules that require prominence to be given to so-called public service channels on freeview packages. Thus, not only are viewers required to pay for the BBC, even if they do not watch it, the providers of the services for which they do choose to pay have to give prominence to BBC channels. Of course, the most significant legal privilege is the availability of a funding source based not on whether people choose to use the service of the BBC, but on whether they have a television. This, in turn, directly distorts competition with any alternate provider of similar services. This would not be allowed by the Competition and Markets Authority in other similar contexts. Views on the appropriate degree of intervention, on the grounds of promoting competition, vary between economists who believe broadly in free markets. However, there is no clear reason for applying competition policy principles differently in relation to the BBC. Indeed, the reforms in this paper should allow a reconsideration of media competition rules more generally. The broadcast media landscape will look different given the proposals in this paper. Most importantly, the BBC would become a mutual, with very dispersed ownership and with a substantial part of the news media market. The BBC would also become detached from the state, but could not be taken over by a fully commercial provider or by an individual these proposals would embed structural diversity into the market and should, perhaps, make us less concerned both with BBC dominance and with the dominance of other players, as there would be a range of models competing alongside each other with different ownership structures, but with none having a legally privileged source of funds. Conclusion It is difficult to think of a strong economic reason for the current model of funding public service broadcasting, or indeed for active public policy in relation to public service broadcasting at all. Broadcasting might be a means to other policy ends, for example in the field of education, but it is not necessarily for the government to concern itself with public service broadcasting as such. Reconsideration of the model for funding public service broadcasting calls into question the whole approach towards ownership and governance of the BBC. There are good reasons to end the situation, whereby all owners of television sets have to purchase a TV licence, and for reconsidering the model of state ownership of the BBC. A belief in a free economy does not a priori favour one form of non-government ownership over another, whilst a customer-owned mutual may be at a disadvantage competing in a purely commercial environment, there are ways to circumvent those problems. 
It is likely that the creation of a customer-owned mutual would be valued by its subscribers and by current license holders. If the BBC were turned into a subscriber-owned mutual, which could be known as the, quote, National Broadcasting Trust, close quote, though it would probably wish to keep the name BBC for marketing purposes, the requirement to subscribe to the BBC in order to receive other television channels would cease. There would therefore be competition on a level playing field between different broadcasters with different ownership models, cultures and services, many fulfilling niche demands and others operating internationally. The takeover of the BBC by political interests, whether by the state directly or by corporate interests seeking to influence the political system, would be impossible given the ownership structure proposed. Media diversity and plurality would be promoted in a market context. This has been IEA Current Controversies number 71, New Vision, Liberating the BBC from the Licence Fee, by Philip Booth, January 2020, and published by the Institute of Economic Affairs. Voiced by Elise Bousset.